0: remember one thing, being part of the underground brings roses to the cheeks. (laughs) Excuse me while I read a poem. If I had a firecracker 12 feet high and taller than 15 men, I'd set it off on the 4th of July and blow Lucille 12 miles high so she wouldn't come down again till next July. And then I'd do it again. <laughs> Isn't that a terrible thought? Inadvertently, Shell has said what he thinks of women. <laughs> oh, poor Shelley. Yes, they rise like sudden fiery flowers that burst upon the night and then fall to earth in burning showers of crimson, blue, and white. Like buds, too wonderful to name, each miracle unfolds. Isn't that that nice? Uh, I'll finish that poem. Yes. Yes. Like buds too wonderful to name, each miracle unfolds, and Catherine wheels begin to flame like whirling marigolds. Rockets and Roman candles make an orchard of the sky, whence magic trees their petals shake upon each gazing eye. Fourth of July, would you please uh, sneak in a little uh, patriotic type music? Will you, Bob, please? Ta <laughs> ta Okay. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. I played that uh, special little music there, and before we before we get underway with our our big Fourth of July type show, let's uh, let's uh, do as one of my famed colleagues always says. Let's take care of a little business here. Let's go over to your favorite place. Where the man behind the bar knows you by your first name. And knows your beer choice. Miller High Life. Take that corner booth. Two stands of Miller, please. It's A friendly place, isn't it? Where a man can get away from the traffic and the time clocks of this world. Ah, Miller High Life. On draft tall, cold stein. hearty, robust, deep down good. Miller makes it right. Right? Let's come back here again, where there's plenty of Miller high life on draft. The champagne of beers. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee. Miller makes it right. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee. And the you say that we have a commercial? Palisades Amusement Park is great. It's groovy. Come on over. From Radley Drive monorail and the jet star. Come on over. Parking and dancing spree. You'll have a bargain. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Tuesdays and Thursdays rides. A nickel and a dime. Your favorite Stars. Oh, the record stars. You'll see them all for free. Oh, well, Come ride the bumper cars. Come, oh, the bumper cars, guys. Palisades Amusement Park. The lights are pretty. Magic City. Roller coaster. Oh. Cotton candy. Cotton Can't candy. Fantastic dandy. At Palisades Amusement Park. At Palisades Amusement Park. Oh, man. We go to parks. Oh, uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I got carried away there. That's uh, the old Palisades Amusement Park. And, man, they really go on this uh, Fourth of July weekend. So, uh, old buddy, why buck uh, traffic this big holiday weekend? We have a little note here that says, Take the new public service bus number 898. And, gee, that's one of the bigger ones, I'll tell you. Usually number three or four. This is number 898. From the Port Authority bus terminal to Edgewater beautiful Edgewater New Jersey there's free shuttle service to and from Palisades amusement park and uh, free this Saturday and Sunday at Palisades there is the uh, natural gas not that you don't get enough of that over in Jersey anyway but the uh, natural gas is there soul Dukes and many others and that uh, we'd like to add here uh, editorially that uh, uh, from the throne room here that uh, when the the monarchy finally takes its full course that we're going to Absolutely uh, uh, promote circuses like Palisades Amusement Park. So go and have fun, serfs. Okay, now let's get underway. Would you sneak in a little of that music again, if you will? Or that American-type music? Okay. Now, I have had, in the last couple of weeks, I must have had, oh, 150 requests from people to read a story from my book which came out last year uh, and and is incidentally this story is and has been uh, the most i would say probably one of the most popular episodes in the book one of the probably one of the two or three of the most popular episodes and uh, it appeared originally in playboy a couple of years ago but this particular story is out of the book which uh, it came out under Doubleday a couple of years... Well, it was last year, actually. A book called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And in an attempt to evoke uh, American life. And uh, for those of you who don't know about the, the book, and maybe this might be interesting even for those of you who do, uh, that the, some of the most interesting comments about the book have come from European readers. Uh, European readers by the hundreds have written uh, to both Doubleday and Bantam saying they've never read about this side of American life, which is the walking around nitty-gritty side of life that we all know about and rarely talk about. It has nothing to do with nostalgia. It's just the life that we lead. Now, I won't read the beginning part of this chapter where the character, uh, whose name is Parker, by the way, is not me in this, in this book, the character, uh, is in a French restaurant and he is watching the lights flicker past the bar as He's waiting for somebody. The, the name of the restaurant is, uh, is La Miserable Dufrit. And he has ordered a couple of Bloody Charlies, which is his favorite drink. He's waiting for his friends. And a couple of minutes before that, he's been walking through the New York City streets in the middle of uh, July heat. The heat has been booming down. It's tremendously hot, just like it is now. And there's been a couple of... Uh, he can see the... Uh, the construction going on. Everywhere he hears the sound of detonations as they're blowing up uh, the ground to build new buildings and so on. And now he's sitting in this restaurant and he is wondering why the sound of an explosion is a peculiarly satisfying sound. Why people, somehow, the sound of an explosion, no matter whether you're anti-war or pro-war, it's an exciting sound. And he's thinking about this. And he mentions... And I'll start right there. I'm I'm cutting out about half of the chapter which is involved in the novel itself and go on to the specific incident that he recalls. He He is recalling a chapter out of his life. He says, it's the 4th of July. It had crept up on tiny cat's feet, on the scale of the calendar, unnoticed, unsung, unbombarded. It was then that I knew where those pleasant tinglings of mingled regret an exhilaration that we call nostalgia, had come from. In just a few hours, it would be the glorious fourth, and here I was, without so much as a sparkler to my name. I ordered another drink, settled down comfortably into my soft, eiderdown bed of remembrances of things past. There are times when you just have to let it go. As I mulled the twin olives in my classical Charlie, the northern Indiana landscape... ...of the late Depression era began to take form, shadowy and persistent. The late 30s and the early 40s, amid the green and gold bottles behind the mirrored bar directly ahead of me... ...the blackened stumps, snaggletoothed and primal of the steel mills and the oil refineries... ...lay sketched against the hazy gray-green horizon of the July skies of the Great Lakes. Somewhere off in the distance, the construction crew set off another dull thumping blast that jiggled the silverware on my table, and it all began to come back. It all began to come back. Yes, the 4th of July. Dynamite, heat, and excitement were all intermingled in that 4th of July ritual that had long since departed. What is there about a solid molar-rattling explosion that sets the blood a-tingling and brings the roses to the cheeks. There are muddled-headed souls who will tell you over and over that man is basically a peaceful and quiet creature, destined ultimately to while away his golden days strumming lutes, penning odes, and watching birds. I have never yet witnessed the turtle preparing to ignite the portentous fuse of a cherry bomb. No. It remained for man to concoct black powder from the innocent elements of the earth and ultimately to split the atom. All in pursuit of that healing bomb. The thundering report. (laughs) And nowhere was this particular pleasure more honored and indulged than in the mill towns of northern Indiana. Even today, there are countless veterans of those fireworks barrages, hearing partly gone, Yes, a high, thin, singing sound in the cranium, sporting stunted, stubbly eyebrows, vaguely jumpy from borderline shell-shock, who search in vain for the fireworks stand to assuage their deep hunger for the celebrated concussion, the better to honor our glorious American past. The fireworks stand. The fireworks stand. Even setting the words down stark and simple on the page, causes my hand to tremble and my brow to dampen in delicious fear. Yeah, the kind of fear that only a kid who has lit a five-incher under a carnation milk can and has hurled himself prone upon the earth awaiting the end can know. Even the look of classical fireworks was magnificent. The five-incher, hard, cool, rock-like cylinder of sinister jade green, its vicious red fuse aggressive and yet Quiet, cradled in the palm of the hand. It's an experience once known, never forgotten. The cherry bomb. Ah, the cherry bomb. What pristine geometric tensile beauty! A perfect orb, a brilliant carmine red, packed chock a block with latent terror and destruction. The torpedo, an instrument malevolent yet subtly complex, designed for hand to hand celebration. Many a grown man today carries in his shins a peppering of tiny round pebbles buried deep in the flesh from too close familiarity with the roaring torpedo, a shrapnel victim of the glorious fort. For the uninitiated, at this point I must explain that the torpedo was perhaps an inch high, a half-inch in circumference, symbolically striped in the colors of our country, made to be hurled against a brick wall or a passing Oldsmobile. A contact weapon of singular violence that sent its ignitors, tiny rock fragments, showering over an area of 50 yards or more. You ever throw a torpedo at anything, Bob? You know those little rocks that fly? The pinwheel. Listen to this. It's an expensive device, largely used for flamboyant show, and yet responsible for some of the major conflagrations of the past. Whole blocks, and indeed in some cases entire towns, disappeared under the roaring flames to the applause of the multitude. I speak with more than average authority on these matters, since my father, a genuinely dedicated fireworks maniac, owned and operated a fireworks stand every year during my larval stages. I wonder how many of you out there ever worked in a fireworks stand. You're listening to a guy who did. Oh, yeah, the fireworks stand. I remember sitting out there and just watching those big butter and egg men drive up to the fireworks stand and with a wave, yeah, speaking of butter and egg, man, this is WOR, New York. And it would just drive up, you know, in, in, a, in an Oldsmobile and uh, walk up to the stand. I'm a kid, see, I'm selling this fireworks stuff. And uh, they'd say, hi, uh, right, give, me, give me some of the big ones, kid. And it'd be a blonde standing next to him, a little thin blonde. He said, give me some of the big ones. Come on, here, and he slapped five bucks down on the counter. Come on, I want nothing but the big stuff. I want stuff that has a lot of, a lot of sound, to, it, a lot of guts to it. I said, so, okay. And I turn around and I start digging out these big Dago bombs and stuff. The stuff that only the butter and egg men bought. You know, great big heavy bombs and stuff. And I put them in a paper sack. And it would come to $4.98. Like that. I'd run it right up to the five, see. He'd say, here, kid, keep the change. two cents. That's a butter and egg mat. Works like that. And then he would get back into the Oldsmobile. And I would turn to my kid brother. Now, I'm telling you seriously, what I saw one time, I'm turning to my kid brother. And I says, hey, Randy. And my kid brother's sitting in the back of the stand, sitting on a milk crate, drinking knee-high orange. It's hot. It's 150 degrees. The old man has gone into town for some change, which we were continually doing. And uh, I says, hey, Randy, watch this one. And Randall looks out. And sure enough, you see the butter and egg man getting back into his Oldsmobile. And he's got this big, fat, white owl cigar sticking out of his trap. He reaches into the sack. The girl is sitting next to him. And he takes a cherry bomb and lights it on the cigar. Holds it out. And he can't see that it's lit. You know, he's had a couple of drinks. And he tries to light it again. And his cigar is like that. And all the while, I see the thing is going, you know? I said, Randy, watch this. And just at the right moment I would holler, Look out and the guy'd look over at me and he starts to throw it and kaboom, boom, boom. And his hat his hat, which was a Panama straw, disintegrates. <laughs> he's got this he's got this patent leather hair. it's parted right in the middle. His cigar is blown all over the highway. And the chick is going, oh. And she goes like that and ducks down. The guy says, "Ah, that's nothing. That's nothing, baby. And he takes his hand back in. He starts to drive the car. When well, you notice that he's only got a thumb on his, on his left hand, he drives away. <laughs> and that was the big butter and egg man. And I want to I tell you the story now. Let's see. I'm going to cut down here. Uh, and cut a little bit in here. Here we go. All right. Ah. The more civilized celebrants on the 4th of July spent their entire relief check on one orgy of fireworks buying. Fireworks came in a number of exotically lethal varieties. Among them was the classical Dago bomb. And I must say this was not construed as an anti-Italian name it was more pro than anything else the dago bomb was the ne plus ultra of the fireworks world ever seen one a thing of true beauty symmetry it came in several sizes four to be exact the five inch the eight inch the ten inch and the sure death in more a fate circles it was known as an aerial bomb but among real fireworks fans it was most often known as the dago heister it actually looked like one of those giant non existent firecrackers that used to show up in cartoons. You remember the cartoons where the Cousin Jammer kids would always be blowing up the captain of this gigantic firecracker? No, you know you never see a real firecracker like that unless it's filled with candy. But that is exactly what this bomb looked like, one of those great big babies. Red, white, and blue tool with a wooden base stained dark green, a long red fuse, and instructions printed on the bottom. Quote. Place upright in a clear, unobstructed area. After igniting, stand well back. Not recommended for children. The manufacturer assumes absolutely no responsibility for this device. Wow. Theoretically, this infernal machine was to be lit by an expert hand. It would then explode with the first or minor explosion, which propelled an aerial charge of pure white TNT into the ambient air, theoretically vertical for several hundred feet. And then, when that little charge got way up there a couple hundred feet, boom! Yeah, not once, but several times. Boom, boom, depending on the size of the Dago bomb in question. It was not cheap. The smallest bomb going for 50 cents, the largest for around three dollars which in the days of the late depression was truly a capital investment in destruction. Now the legends surrounding this mysterious weapon are countless. The mere sight of one of the larger specimens on the shelves of a firework stand sent waves of fear and nervous excitement through the sparkler buyers. It was truly the big time. You shot one of them babies off, that's the big time. And it was, friends, if you'll give me a little of that romantic music now, Bob. It was a dagel bomb that played a key role in the legend that was Ludlow Kissel, one of the great patriots of our time. Mr. Kissel found his true medium in the Depression itself. Lud Kissel worked in idleness the way other artists worked in clay or marble. God only knows what would have happened to him have it not been for the Depression. A true child of his time. He was also a magnificent souse. The word alcoholic had not yet come into a common usage, at least in the steel towns of Indiana. Nor was there any lurking. Freudian fears or explanations of the classical appetite for potage that Kissel nourished. He was a drunk. That was all it was to him. He knew it. Everyone knew it. He just liked the stuff, the booze. He glommed onto it wherever the occasion demanded. And if the store-bought and variety of lightning was not available, he concocted his own using raisins, apricots, Fleischman's yeast, molasses, dead flies, anything. He knew how to make it. Now, nominally, Kissel worked in the roundhouse, and for over 30 years he had been on the extra board, being called only in extreme emergencies, which occurred roughly every other month or so. He invariably celebrated a day of work by holing up in the Bluebird Inn for maybe a week, and then would return home, propelling himself painfully forward on one foot and one knee. He was compensating for a tilted horizon, the sound of Kissel crawling up the gravel driveway next to his house was a familiar one. And it took him sometimes upwards of three hours to make it from the street to the back porch. And at three o'clock in the morning, lying in my dark bedroom next to the Kissel place, it was kind of comforting to hear Mr. Kissel struggling up the steps of his back porch, inching painfully, step by step. Thump. I'd counted my, my bed. One. Long pause. Thump. Two. Longer pause. Thump. He's made three in a row. Split second pause. There'll be just a brief pause and then. Thump, 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 thump. He's back at the bottom. Many's the time I've slipped off to sleep with this familiar sound of human endeavor battling over overwhelming odds. Kissel trying to make the kitchen door. And then the voice, the voice of Mrs. Kissel, a large, flower-print-aproned lady who read true romances voraciously, would call out, Watch the steps, lud. They're tricky. She loved him. Kissel, one-fourth of July, played a leading role in a patriotic tableau, which is even today spoken of in hushed, reverential tones in the area. It was a particularly steamy, yeasty, hellish July. The houseflies clung to the screen doors. The mosquitoes hummed in great whirling clouds in the poplar trees. It was in such weather that Mr. Kissel reached his apogee. He was not a winter's house. There was something about the birds and the bees and the hot sun that set off a spark in Mr. Kissel's blood and stoked an insatiable thirst for the healing grape. His stocky overall figure reading through the twilight, leaving a wake of flickering fireflies, which is much a part of the summer landscape as the full golden moon. Parishioners sprinkling their lawns and snowball bushes would nod familiarly to him as he wove through the fine spray of their brass nozzles. The fourth in question dawned, hot and jungle-like, with an overhang of black, lacy storm clouds. In fact, a few warm, immense drops sprinkled down through the dawn haze. I know, because I was up and ready for action. Few kids slept late on the 4th. Even as the stars were disappearing and the sun was edging out over the lake, the first cherry bombs cracked the stillness, and the first old ladies dialed the police. Carbide cannons, which had gathered dust in basements for a year, roared out, greeting the dawn. And by 7 a.m., the first dozen pairs of eyebrows were blackened and singed, and already the wounded were being buttered with unguentine and sent back into the fray. Long lines of overheated Willys' Knights, Essexes, Oldsmobiles, and Chevys inched toward the beaches. Babies cried, mothers wept, and husbands swore. Parades fitfully broke out, and the White Sox prepared to battle it out in the big Fourth of July doubleheader with the St. Louis Browns. Futility meeting hopelessness head-on. The sun rose higher and higher and at its zenith blazed down with an intensity of purpose and effectiveness equal to its best work in equatorial Africa. The asphalt simmered quietly and stuck to the trees. The tennis shoes of the passing parades gathered tar. Lilac bushes drooped fragrantly and the cicadas screamed from the cottonwoods. Through it all, the steady rolling barrage of exploding black powder in one form or another paid homage to our great war of independence. Yes, and as the day wore on, this barrage grew in intensity because all true fireworks nuts learned from infanthood the fine art of rationing and husbanding the ammunition for the crucial moment which always came just after dark. Kissel had not made his appearance throughout the long morning and early afternoon. He was undoubtedly stoking his private furnace in preparation for his gala, which, when it came, was worth waiting for. Shortly after noon, a few drops of rain sprinkled down, just enough to dampen the shirt and the rose bushes, but not the spirits. Little did we realize that we were shortly to be the observers of a scene that would be discussed and recounted through the long winter months of years to come. The event simply became known as Kissel's Dago Bomb. The White Sox and the Brownies had painfully worked their way to the top of the third of the first game, a scoreless tie, of course, when Kissel appeared on the shimmering horizon weaving spectacularly and carrying a large paper bag as carefully as a totally committed drunk can. Kissel was about to celebrate the founding of our nation. The nation which had provided such a bounteous life for him and for his. Well, at first, no one paid much attention to the struggling figure as it inched its way from lamppost to lamppost, fire plug to fire plug. Little girls burned sparklers on porches. And I was carefully depleting a string of Chinese ladyfingers. These are tiny firecrackers with pleated fuses all woven together and designed for the rich and profligate to fire off simultaneously by simply lighting the main fuse. No kid in his right mind ever did that. But instead, we carefully disengaged fuse by fuse the ladyfingers and fired them off one by one under garbage cans, on porches, behind dogs. My mother, at regular intervals called from the kitchen window the 4th of July watch cry of all mothers. Be careful! You're going to lose an eye if you're not careful! This was, of course, purely ritualistic. It was only a minor annoyance. Flick had already suffered a flesh wound of a routine nature. His right hand was swathed in a grease-soaked mob of gauze. The result of demonstrating that he could hold a three-incher in his hand when it went off and still survive... He was now back on the scene, working as a lefty. In short, it was a fourth like all other fourths. Up to the moment that Kissel took his historic stand. He had disappeared into his house to prepare for his massive statement of patriotism. Shortly afterward, he appeared on the front porch and stumbled down the steps, carrying in his right hand the biggest, most fantastic Dago bomb that had ever been seen in the entire neighborhood. It was a Dago houster of truly awesome stature, being fully a foot and a half high and a good three inches in diameter, and it was the first all-black Dago bomb anyone had ever seen. This point has been argued over many a cold winter afternoon. Some reports have it that Kissel's Dago bomb was not a Dago bomb at all, but some kind of a mortar shell. Others maintained, no, that is not true. It was a bomb of foreign make, possibly Chinese, as the somber, menacing color was highly unorthodox. Suffice it to say that no one ever really determined just where Kissel obtained the weapon or its true nature, as Kissel himself was hazy on most details of his life. This was no exception. His only comment later, which was never really disputed, was, I sure got one. When Kissel emerged from his front door and came down the steps carrying his work of the devil, the neighborhood almost magically knew that something big was about to happen. Sparklers flickered out. Kids ran through vacant lots and over driveways. Heads appeared at windows. The crowd gathered. Kissel, with that peculiar deliberateness of the perpetually fog-bound, laboriously started to detonate the black beauty. He placed it dead in the center of the concrete roadway stood back to survey the scene, weaving slightly as he worked. The crowd drew back and watched, silently, excitement hanging over the multitude in a thin blue haze. Fireworks of that magnitude rarely were seen and commanded instant respect, of course. The ebony monster stood bolt upright, silently, with a cool quality of the truly lethal, understated but potent, Shimmering waves of heat caused the scene to take on a strange, unreal, flickering quality. The neighborhood fell silent, and only the dull mutterings of distant fire barrages broke the stillness. Going through pocket after pocket after pocket, fumblingly, maddeningly, and finding only pencil stubs and brass keys, It seemed to go on forever until finally someone, this point was also later in dispute, no one quite knew who actually handed him the book of matches, solved the problem. Kissel took the book of matches in hand, paused for a moment, and belched a deep, round, satisfying, shuddering burp of the sort that can only come from a vast internal lake of green beer. The crowd applauded. And shifted impatiently, all eyes riveted on the dull black menace that stood with such dignity in the center of the concrete roadway. Finally, Kissel struck a match, which instantly went out. He struck another. It, too, flickered and died. Another and another. There was, I might add, a slight breeze which puffed fitfully from the northwest. The audience grew restive, but no one dared leave. In fact, more viewers of this historic event were arriving by the minute. Kissel, as is so often the case with the massive drunk, seemed totally unaware of the drama he was creating. And with maniacal fury, struggled with his matchbook, lighting match after match. Suddenly, out of the crowd, a kid darted, an experienced detonator of high explosive of all sorts, who shoved into Kissel's palsied hand a stick of briskly smoldering punk. The kid, according to one witness, who testified later, uttered one word, here then turned and scurried forever back into the throng and into the pages of local folk history Kissel thinking at first he had been given a cigar gazed at it numbly for a moment or two and then dimly perceived that here was the means of lighting the fuse of this colossal black dago bomb the fuse on this type of insanity is of the coder variety in this case it was about three inches long a black stiff powder impregnated length of fiber it does not take much friends to light them and once lit, the die is cast. Kissel shuffled forward, punk in hand, made several futile passes at the fuse, the magnificent bomb remaining aloof and cool throughout. With each pass, the crowd retreated, and then, with the inevitability of Greek drama, in the muttering silence, the tell-tale hiss sounded forth clear and unmistakable. <sniffs> the fuse was lit. Immediately, the assemblage rolled back in a mighty wave, turned and waited until Kissel... What? Kissel is attempting to light the fuse again. Totally unaware, the time is growing short. Someone called out, Hey, Kissel! Kissel, for God's sake! It's lit! Kissel raised his head, questioning, and said, What's lit? The ominous hiss continued, and then, suddenly, without warning, stopped. Occasionally, these fuses are tricky and extremely dangerous. They've been known to lie dormant like this for hours, seemingly extinguished for no good cause. Obviously, this black menace was one of the treacherous. Kissel returned to his fight, again touching punk to fuse, and this time the fuse, in its unpredictable way, hissed frantically. Kissel, at last, seeing that his monster was lit, attempting his getaway, he reeled in a half circle, befuddled, trailing punk smoke behind him, and then staggering forward, knocked the black monster over on its side, hissing fiercely with only seconds remaining. Great Scott! The crowd, seeing this catastrophe unrailing before its eyes, to a man hit the dirt. Those on the fringes dug into snowball bushes. Others simply moaned piteously and dug in. It was good training as events turned out for later years. The dago bomb lay on its side, its ugly snout pointing toward the houses, which lay across the lawns 200 feet away or so. Cooler members of the mob shouted to those in the houses, ''Look out! Look out! It's coming! Close your windows!'' The fuse sputtered on. Kissel, himself, now aware of the nature of the rapidly approaching catastrophe, made a futile but certainly courageous attempt to right the bomb. Someone yelled, ''Get down, Kissel! You're going to get killed!'' Kissel fell over backward and lay flattened out on the concrete, waiting for the call of his maker. And then it happened. There are events which lend themselves readily to the descriptive phrase, the words of pen or tongue, and there are things then which happen which cannot be adequately communicated the incident of Kissel's Daigle bomb must be in that department. Suffice it to say that the bomb was well made. It was of an order of efficiency that firework manufacturers rarely achieve. With a definite, clipped, stinging report, the aerial bomb, (laughs) lying horizontally on its side, propelled its deadly cartridge of dynamite out along the earth skipping, humming, singing in an instantaneous trajectory that struck terror into the very marrow of the bones of those fortunate enough to be on the scene. It's bouncing over the road, over the lawn. This Dago bomb was obviously designed to send its charge at least 500 feet in the air. For an instant or so, we were not aware of what sort of charge it was about to deliver. We soon found out. The charge, which seemed... Abnormally large as it emerged from the black maw of Kissel's folly, skimmed over the sidewalk, parting the spectators like the Red Sea, over the lawn, over the driveway, and with a sharp, audible click and whistling sizzle, under Kissel's front porch. And then for a long, pendulous moment, the universe stood still, fingernails clawed the earth, heads burrowed in the hedges, and then. Thunderous explosion rocked the neighborhood. The slats of Kissel's porch bellowed outward. The floor tilted instantly downward. A great yellow swirling cloud of dust rose over the lilac bushes. A second or two passed as an eternity. And then another and another louder detonation thundered over the landscape. Boom! time it caved in the rose trellis of the house next door to Kissel's. A crowd heaved and dug deeper as two more giant explosions. Kaboom! Kaboom! Pounded almost as one, these two under Mr. Strickland's Pontiac next door. A heavy cloud of dust swirled for a moment and then all was still, except for the pattering of the quiet raindrops. Kissel slowly pulled himself up to his knees and made his statement, which is even today part of that great legend that is Lud Kissel's fourth. My God, what a doozy. Kissel had said it for all of us. As the crowd slowly got to its feet amid the quiet tinkling of glass and the heavy, sensual smell of oxidized dynamite, they were aware that they had been witness to history. I idly stirred my third bloody Charlie, as off in the middle distance another muffled construction blast ballooned and jiggled the bottles behind the bar. The great blood Kissel faded back into the landscape as I pensively chewed a cashew nut. ...as I vainly returned to the here and now. After all, fireworks we all know are dangerous and childish playthings... ...that have no place in the hard-hitting, on-the-go male's life of today. A passing cab sent a reflected shaft of light across the mirror behind the bar. It broke into a thousand colors amid the bottles. Subtly, I was reminded of the beautiful colored lights of the ancient Roman candles... A Roman candle is a truly noble and inspired piece of the pyrotechnician's art. A long, sender, thin wand that sent balls of colored fire into the midnight sky, searching for the stars that are unattainable. Always searching. And that was the legend of Ludlow Kissel. (laughs) And the great patriotic celebration of the 4th of July. Yes, like some page out of an ancient history of an ancient people. A strange race. They were people who believed, who didn't know what they believed in, but just believed, who celebrated and knew not what they celebrated. And the weaving figure, Lud Kissel, recedes into the misty red, white, and blue background, the last of the great patriots. And that was from In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. High school band marching by 327 pom pom girls and two trombone players. (laughs) All right, Bob. I always enjoy the Fourth of July show, you know? I always wish I had about two and a half hours longer. So hang in out there in that traffic jam gang. Think clean thoughts. And uh, another Fourth has passed into history.